Welcome to Mutterings from a Bald Guy podcast. My name is Chet, your host. You will find sermons and teachings that put Scripture in its rightful place of authority on this podcast. If you like this episode or any, could you tap five stars and leave me a review? When you tap those stars and leave a review, that significantly helps me spread more salt in our morally decaying world. Hey, let's bring life to the dead together. So we are going to get started on some more categories tonight, and um, I'm hoping to, for it to be a little shorter because I know there's a lot of information in these things, and I want to take it by piecemeal so we can really grasp it. So just to recap, uh, the categories we've went over so far is creation, general revelation, and God's providential care for number one. Um, number two is polemic, with, which is God speaking with, for, or against the culture. And then we have number three, miracles and acts of power. Um, we talked about God showing himself through healings in the New Testament, God showing himself through acts of power in the Old Testament, through the prophets. Um, number four, historical verification, eyewitness testimony and evidence. We talked about how we have real history. Um, Cole and I were talking today in staff meeting and how we were just, he was sharing about what he was studying for the youth and we both just kind of giggled because it's fascinating that when you look at church history, there are secular writers that wrote about Jesus, men that have no Christian background. They do not believe in Jesus, but they wrote about him because they heard about him, they encountered him, and which just proves even more that Jesus was a real man and that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And then fulfilled prophecy, we uh, put a big caution on that to be careful because a lot of the prophecy has been fulfilled, even though there is some that is to be fulfilled, but we need to be careful of how we communicate that to others. Number six, Christians as good citizens with exemplary character and love. And uh, number six is hard to do these days, but we are to do it because the scripture calls us to. And then number seven, personal ecclesial and Holy Spirit testimony. The personal testimony of what Jesus did for us, the testimony of the church body, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit goes out and persuades people um, to trust in Jesus. Now, I'll prove to you really quick just that aspect. When you share the gospel with someone, you can tell if their heart is ripe for the gospel. Because if it's not, they're you know, looking at their watch, they're ready to go, they don't want to hear what you have to say. But if someone's heart is ripe for the gospel, they're listening, and they're curious, and they ask questions. I, I had a lot of fun today. I was, I, for the first time in a long time, I went for a run um, in the middle of the day, which was very refreshing because it's been too cold lately to run. I mean, I don't like running in the cold, so it's been warming up. Um, I went for a run, and I, I, I met these two guys on their bicycles on the side of the road, and I talked to them a little bit, and they are like, man, why, why are you running on the side of the road? <laughs> I was like, well, why are you riding your bike on the side of the road? Uh, but we just started talking, and I said, man, have, you know, have y'all heard the good news? He said, no, what's the good news? I said, well, I said, man, God loves you so much that he has sent his son to die for you. And if you believe in him, that you can go to heaven. And uh, it's so funny because immediately they were like, so why would you say you're running again? <laughs> we talked a little bit, but I mean, it was a good conversation. They didn't completely shut me up, but they were just, they're ready to move on with their day, you know. <clears throat> so moving forward. Experiential apologetics will begin to be of importance as we continue. Experiential apologetics is the story I just shared with you. It's your experience. It's how you encounter apologetics. It's how you encounter sharing the gospel. It's how you encounter other people using the tools that we learn each week here. 
So we're jumping into number eight. By the way, there's 15 categories. And you don't need to memorize all the categories. This is just showing you how many tools you have in your tool belt to share the gospel. All right? So uh, scripturally, that is. Number eight, raising questions with an intent to undermine or disarm false beliefs. If you guys remember, God asked Job a lot of rhetorical questions. God knew the answers. He's just showing Job who's creator, who's in authority. And that's God disarmed Job that way. Jesus responds with questions to challenge. Look at Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 45. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. So we see Jesus responds with questions to challenge. He challenged them. And he did it in a way it wasn't abrasive. It wasn't brutal. It was a question. It was a statement. It was something that got them to think. And they thought, oh boy, we're not messing with some Joe on the street. This man's the real deal. So questions cause people to stop and think. This clears the way for consideration about a gospel appeal. Some of the most influential men in my life have been men that I sit down with and instead of telling me what to do, they ask me a question. And, I, you know, I've caught on. It took me a while, but I caught on after a while that those questions meant something. Those questions meant for me to think. Those questions meant for me to stop and wonder. And a lot of times those questions wouldn't hit me until the next day or while I'm laying in bed at night. Because I'm not quick. I'm not witty and quick. I, you, you probably met a lot of preachers or a lot of speakers and, uh, who can just come up, you know, with no notes and just pop off. You know, that's not me. So later on, I think about things. I'm like, man, that would have been a good thing to say, but it's too late now. Um, so questions is, is, is important. It's powerful. It's something that we need to do. Um, we raise questions with an intent to undermine or disarm false beliefs. For example, I was in the Angola prison, and um, Nicole and I got married in 2014. This would have probably been 2013. And um, her, her biological father is actually there for life. And so it was, a moment, it was a weird season because it was a moment in time where we were both praying that somehow, you know, the group, the mission group that was going inside the Angola prison would somehow, that gospel would reach him. I didn't get to see him. I don't know what cell block he was on, but we were not married yet. So I didn't have to say, I, you know, that I was affiliated with his daughter. But we were walking through the cell block and this is maximum prison. I'm talking... Um, What's the warden's name that used to be there? Oh, it'll come to me in a minute. But he, he started this program. There's a chapel in every block in Angola prison. These are lifers, okay? And, and let me tell you something. You, I've never experienced a revival until I went to the Angola prison. Those men were on fire for the Lord. There were pastors there were ministers that completed certificates with New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. They did better outreach than I've seen any church do. I mean, if someone had a question, they were going to their block the next day. Hey, well, you know, what you think about that? Or, hey, come to church. I mean, they would just hound people. <laughs> they were, their outreach was phenomenal. And so we're walking through the, the maximum security, and, and they, the, they told us, they were like, look, 
you can shake hands with them, but just know, you know, you're, you're taking a risk because we can't, we can't guarantee you that they're not going to pull your arm and break it, break it. I'm like, great. That's something I needed to hear. So these guys obviously wanted to shake our hands. So we shook their hands while we were walking through and they're behind bars. There's usually two per cell. And um, these were the guys that only got about 24 hours, that only got about four hours within 24 hours of outside time. And I was talking to this one gentleman, he was Muslim. The, the Muslim religion is everywhere in the prison system, I found out. It's everywhere. It spreads like rapid fire. So these Christian men were, were fighting, were trying to disarm the belief of the Muslim faith. And I was talking to a minister, and he mentioned how he has come up with certain questions to ask a Muslim brother that would disarm him or cause him to think. So that's kind of the thing. You want to, you know they, you know they believe in false they have a false belief, it's heresy, but you don't want to say, hey, um, you're not believing the right thing, because that's not going to go anywhere. Who likes to be told that? So they ask questions. Habakkuk, oh, sorry, let me go back. So God and Habakkuk, um, in this, inter, in this uh, discourse between God and Habakkuk, Habakkuk objects God. God responds by saying he will punish Judah by even more wicked Babylon, right? And then Habakkuk objects again. And then God reframes Habakkuk's narrative, okay? So what God does is he says, okay, Habakkuk, I know that you're objecting me. I know you don't see the full picture. So what God does is he reframes what he's going to do and shows Habakkuk how he's going to make things right. He reframes it. He doesn't say, Habakkuk, bend over. You're a bad boy. No, God didn't say that. God reframed what Habakkuk already knew and thought and made him see God's plan and God's purpose which is a perfect example about answering objections. And then we also know a glimpse of God and his future reframes the present. There's a lot in that statement. All right, so some cases, God simply shatters our models and narratives so we can see life in the proper perspective. Man, I got like six stories of that. I mean, do y'all, where God comes in and says, ah, you got a plan, but this is my plan. (laughs) <laughs> my, my model of life, my narrative of life has been shattered so many times I've just learned to go with God. <laughs> I've learned to follow him because we can have plans, but ultimately God's the grand narrative maker. He's the one that has everything in control and he's the one that we trust. This is a good one, guys. Pay attention because I'm gonna tell you number 10, number 10 is the number one thing people are gonna have questions about. Why is there suffering? Why is there evil? Why are babies dying? Why, why are there murders? Why was there this Christian group in Kenya that just got slaughtered? Why? Why, why, Lord? People ask that all the time. The good thing is the Bible doesn't shy away from a suffering world. Anger, anguish, lament, and sadness fill our world, okay? The main reason they're suffering, there are many reasons, but the main reason is because of sin. But check this out. Suffering is not all bad. Suffering actually has a lot of good to it. And this is what I mean. Suffering gives us new insights about God. Have you guys ever been through a moment of grief or a moment of turmoil? And when you got out of that season, you had a new insight about God. You understood him a little more. You felt closer to him. Better knowledge about Jesus. Because when we go through tough times, when there's suffering, boy, do we cling to Jesus, right? Because he's, we know he's our hope, so we run to him. It, it reminds me of, uh, I just walked in the door. I usually, I come here on Wednesday about 12.30, 1 o'clock, meet with Cole. 
and then work on until about 6.30 and um, go hurry up, well, about 6.15, grab a bite to eat and then come back for 6.30. And I stay there, I stay at the Parsonage in the morning because of high-speed internet. There's only so much internet here, but that's a whole other story. So I go home and Gracie, she's just, Dada, dada, dada. She runs after me. And then Wesley came to me first because he wanted to show me a picture. So I, I'm trying to take off my shoes and, you know, take my backpack off. And Wesley's like, Daddy, look what I drew for you. And then Gracie's like, dada, dada, dada. She's hugging my leg. She's going, mwah, mwah, mwah. You know, she loves kiss, and I love to kiss her back. And so the minute I didn't pay attention to her and paid attention to Wesley, she just lost it. She was like, Ooh! She's running around the house. Oh, it broke my heart. I said, Wesley, buddy, I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a see you in a little bit. So I ran and got, got Gracie. I said, I'm right here, baby. It's okay. It's okay. So that reminds me of us when we're, when we're suffering, when we're going through a difficult season, how we run and cling to Jesus because we know he's our hope. To Gracie, I'm her hope. I'm her rock right now in her life. And so that's what we do is we cling to, we cling to Jesus and we have a better knowledge of him because we draw near to him. Of course, present discipline, when we're suffering, we're reading our Bibles more, we're looking for answers. You know, you wonder why God allows suffering in our life because we run to him through that. Spiritual growth, of course, we grow through that. And then confirmation of a genuine nature of faith inside of us. Number six, preparation for future glory. I don't think that's supposed to be a number six, by the way. That is supposed to be a number 11. I don't know how that happened. So preparation for future glory. God incarnate suffers and overcomes evil. That is the, that is the picture of what that God's purpose for us. He designed this world. He designed us. Sin came into the world, and God had a perfect purpose and plan to redeem us from the beginning. It was he himself to take upon the suffering so that we can be free. What a God we serve. So Jesus endures all, suffers with us. He knows what it is like because he faced it and conquered it all. Jesus' death, resurrection makes it possible to overcome. We, the broken, are brought to healing. You ever think, has there ever been a situation in your life where you need healing, but God just doesn't provide it right away? And you kind of wonder, Why? I've been there at least four or five times in my life. And I think through those seasons, <clears throat> I've learned that sometimes I just have to take a blind step of faith, even though the emotions don't line up with it, and just trust him, even though I'm miserable. You know, there's legitimate things in this world, and, and I hate that we as a, as a church, I'm talking about as a whole, don't really get on board with. I have a lot of pastor friends that don't refer people to psychologists because they think, oh, you're just, you know, you're depressed or you're anxious or whatever. You're just not dealing with sin. That's not the truth. There's legitimate, there's legitimate issues that people go through that they need counseling. They need someone to talk to. They need medication. And so suffering, 
medication isn't a fix-all. And just trusting God is not a fix-all, guys. God has given us what we have today, the medical profession, the medicine, the medication to help us. And so sometimes those things are necessary. But through all that, through all the suffering, through all the confusion, the turmoil in our life, we still have to make a decision each and every day to trust him, even though it doesn't feel like he's close to us. All right, this is good. When people talk to us about suffering, you need to tell them, Suffering points to the existence of God. And I'll tell you how. The reality of suffering, when we see suffering, there's always encouragement. When we see, like, for example, uh, a few years ago, there was a massive slaughtering of Christians in Kenya, okay? And organization after organization went there to help them. There was suffering but then immediately encouragement came. Who's in control of that? God. God's in control of that. God's desire for what is good brings hope. Can you guys think of any, any other examples of how suffering um, proves the existence of God? Well, how about what we're going through right now? It seems like every time you turn on the news nowadays, it's like the major news outlets just want to pick stories that are absolutely terrible and spin them into things that make us fearful. And it's almost as if the meta-narrative of news media today is to have you so scared that you don't, want to lo- you, um, you don't want to leave your house. So how does that suffering point to the existence of God? How does that fear, how does that narrative that the world has, the culture has of fear point to the existence of God? Another point is the, the, the reason we know suffering points to the existence of God is because of this implanted um, knowing inside of us right from wrong. You know, when, when I was a child, I've shared this with you guys before, but when I did something wrong, I just couldn't help but tell my parents. I just felt like I had to let them know that I did something wrong. Part of that is because I grew up in a very emotional roller coaster home where my mom and dad were, my mom and dad were very manipulative towards one another, towards me, and it was just... It was a mess. Thank God, you know, they're saved by the grace of God today and have a much better marriage. Um, but when I was a kid, it was really rough. And so I always felt guilty for every little thing I did. And I felt like I had to tell them because that was like my redemption. You know, I had to confess it. And that, that sense of right and wrong inside of, of each of us is given to us by God. The difference is we see in Romans 1 that if you continue to suppress that truth over and over and over and over again, eventually you're not going to know it's there. And you're going to be so depraved in your mind that you're just going to do crazy things that people look at you and think, what is wrong with that person? And we see a lot of that going on today. So many people have suppressed the truth of God for so long that the nature that they're in, this evil, this consummation of, of evil desires have become part of who they are. So number 11 logic and reason, rational arguments by biblical authors. So if you look through the New Testament, what you'll find is a bunch of authors that have logical arguments, reasonable arguments for the existence of Christ, for the existence of the scriptures in the Old Testament. However, reason does have limits. If you guys, if you get bored, you know, go on YouTube and type type in... um, apologetic teachers or apologetic preachers. And what you'll find is some of these men and women, they only come from logic and reason. 
And that's not good because logic and reason have limits. For example, Western rationalism is not the same as ancient Near Eastern reasoning. Like poetry, wisdom, parables, narratives, the Gospels, basically this, the way that the authors during this time communicated truths and rationalized is not the way we do that today. That's why if some old boy stands up and says, I know when the world's going to end, I wrote it in my book, and I know exactly when the fire's going to come, and I know what Jesus is going to look like when he comes out of the clouds, I know what the trumpet's going to sound like, you need to say, later. <laughs> because Revelation was written in 90 AD with a bunch of idioms that we have no idea what they mean because we're so far removed. But we do know the theme of Revelation, that God's going to make right what's wrong, and he's going to come back. All right, so God is beyond rationality, right? There's reason and logic, and God is way bigger than that. So logic and reason can't, you know, you can't fit God into this box. It's just not possible. And human beings are more than logical beings. If you walk up to somebody and say, well, uh, I hear that suffering story you're saying, but that just don't sound logical. I mean, that's not going to go over well. <laughs> you're going to need to be an understanding person. You're going to need to be a loving person, a compassionate person, and talk with them and just sit with them if, if need be. There have been more times in ministry that I've sat with someone suffering and I've kept my mouth shut than when I spoke because I, I'm, I think that's the, the best thing you can do is just to be there and not say anything because words, sometimes words are overrated. Human beings have desire, passion, and experience. All right, the part you've all been waiting for, apocalyptic, apologetic. Daniel and Revelation. So what we see there is that God is doing something behind the scenes, and eventually he's going to make the world right again. Eventually it's going to be filled with righteousness. There's going to be a new one, and we're all going to reign in glory for those who believe in Jesus. That's the truth, that's the theme, that's the overarching narrative of the scripture over apocalyptic um, letters and apocalyptic wording in the Bible. What we see is good versus evil. I was talking with a friend, and we had a conversation, and he mentioned, he mentioned, you know, there's a lot of evil in this world. I said, man, you are right. There's a lot of evil. I said, but you know, evil may rule now, but it ain't going to rule forever. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, evil, think of it this way. Good has a leash on evil. If you ever walk your dog and you have a leash, which I wish people, more people would do around here because every time I run down this road, dogs chase me and want to bite me. But when you, when you have a dog, you leash them so you can control them. Good's got a leash on evil because eventually good's going to say, come on back and sling you, and good's going to take over everything, right? So that's the way we got to look at it. God is moving history according to his will, even though Satan rules now. God's still in control. God will still bring peace and righteousness. All right, this is going to blow your minds. From 300 B.C. to 200 A.D., apocalypses were one primary means to make sense of suffering. So Revelation was written to give hope to persecuted Christians. Isn't that something? All the horrible things you see in Revelation, that was meant to give hope and peace. Because the overarching theme is God's going to make right the wrong, and we're going to be with him one day forever. So 
culturally relevant way of explaining reality and visions from God, meaning this literature, Revelation, Daniel's to make sense of suffering. Why am I suffering as a Christian? What's the point of suffering? King Nero wants to kill me. King Nero wants to kill my family. What do I do? I can't get a job. You know, Christians in China are forced with that right now. Christians in China, there's this app called um, Left Me. That's two times something left me. There's an app that you can literally pay for your groceries with. You can um, uh, reserve hotels. You can pay bills with. It's basically China's way of uh, China's PayPal. Okay, just put it that way. Employers will look at that app when they're looking for an employee to see if they're upstanding, if their credit score is right, if their medical history is correct. And China now is, you guys heard me say this in a message a while back, China now, if you're a Christian, they put a mark on you in your documentation. Basically, the employers won't hire you because you're a disgrace to society. So what do you do? You, you, can you imagine those Christians? I'm suffering. What do I do, Lord? Well, when you read a book like Revelation, you're reminded and you're encouraged to know that the end will come and that this suffering will not last forever. All right, number 13, arguments from pagan sources. This is really good. Acts 17, Paul cites pagan poet to preach the Christian God to pagan philosophers. Paul's a brilliant man, wasn't he? I wish I was half as smart as Paul. This proves the Bible is not against reasoning within our culture. Paul showed up to Athens, and he saw all these poets and all these philosophers and all these Stoics and all these people who spoke these grand words. And Paul said, well, let me show you who the Christian God is, and let me prove to you by using your own culture who he is. Paul's a brilliant man. Jesus' unique authority he had self every Everywhere he spoke, people were in awe of his authority. They thought and knew in that moment, this man is not a normal man. He speaks with authority. I kind of I wonder, because when, you, when I think of someone who speaks with authority, I think of someone who's just, you know, strong when they speak. But I, I think when Jesus spoke, and this is, this is what I think, okay? I think when Jesus spoke, literally the Spirit of God touched the ears when his words were coming out. And I believe that his words convicted. I believe they encouraged. I believe they were felt. I believe that it was power literally coming out of him because he was the son of God. He was man, but he was also God, one with authority. And of course, we see that in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So what does he say? He says, go and make disciples. And if you remember, when he called his first disciples, he said, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. You guys know, all of you have been fishing or have watched someone fish. That's a messy job. You gotta stand out in the sun. You get sunburnt. You're reeling in. You have to, you have to get the right tackle. You have to You have to tie your weight on just right. You have to tie your hook on just right. Otherwise, it's going to pop. You got to make sure you have good string. You're out there fishing. You could be fishing for five hours and won't catch anything, but you got to keep fishing because you got to eat, right? It's a messy job. And then you catch a fish. You have to grab it. It's slimy. It's messy. You have to get the hook out, and the hook could be way down there. So now you got to get some pliers and pull it out and try, and maybe you lose your lure, and you got to put another lure on to catch another fish. It's a messy job. 
So is discipleship. Discipleship is messy, but we should never give up. Never give up. And this is the last one. Story number 15. We have been on a three-week journey, and we have made it. Story. The Bible is a storied story. Say that three times fast, huh? One big story made up of many smaller stories. Say that six times fast. I bet you can't do it. So the Bible describes one grand narrative with recounting many smaller narratives. So the meta-narrative, the grand narrative is God has created creation. God has made a way for his creation to be redeemed through Jesus. That's the mega-narrative. And then there are all these little smaller narratives within the scripture that point to the meta-narrative. That doesn't mean you need to read Habakkuk and find Christ under every crock, uh, crock. Crocs. I do need some more Crocs. Um, I have some yellow old ones, and I'd like some green ones, but that's another story. So the meta-narrative and the smaller stories tell a bigger story. We don't need to read Habakkuk and say, oh, look at that verse. That must be Jesus underneath that rock and crevice. Now, that's not what that means. What it means is the Old Testament, the wisdom, the poetry, the gospel accounts all point to God's grand narrative of redemption. John's apocalypse tells a story of a better victory, all right? So here we go. We're going to walk through. Y'all okay? Y'all just shake your heads. Yeah, I'm okay. <clears throat> Y'all all right? Y'all say something. Say something. Hey, preacher, how y'all doing? Hey, preach. Hey, how y'all doing? I'm sweating up here. <clears throat> all right. Act one, creation. Genesis one through three. These are the acts that we see all through the scripture that point to God's um, mega narrative, right? Act two, God's election, rejection, restoration of Israel. That's in Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament. Act three, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the Gospels. Act four, the spirit and early church. Acts, epistles, and church history. And then act five, of course, when Jesus comes back in Revelation. Now, this is the point. This is what we need to remember right now in this moment, in the culture we're in, in the hostile nation we're in, the Bible claims this grand narrative is better than any other cultural story. The Bible claims that this grand narrative is better than any other cultural story. Go to the next one, Dwayne. I think it's on the next one. Next one. There we go. So no matter what happens in this world, no matter, no matter how many mobs form, no matter how many social injustices happen, no matter how many claims of disgrace, no matter who's in power, no matter where we go, no matter what war we fight, the Bible has a better narrative and it's better than any cultural story we see today. You know, one of the things that... that really, 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 really just rubs me the wrong way and I have to watch myself because I get so angry is hearing preachers of God's word falling captive to culture. I cannot stand that. I just can't. And we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of well-known Christians say that they're not Christian anymore. Well, sorry, but you were never a Christian to begin with. Um, I just... It breaks my heart to see that 
I wish it wouldn't happen, but it, it, that's the world we live in. We live in a fallen world. But friends, we, we need to have an answer. We need to have an answer for this fallen world. We need to have an answer. And, and we need to know the grand narrative so we can share it. We live between Act 4 and Act 5. We need to live out this story so others can live it too. This is what we do from here. We stop wondering what we are to do, and then we just start doing what God has called us to do, and he said to go make disciples. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to challenge you because I love to challenge you because I challenge myself when I go through this. Who's your disciple? Do you have someone that you talk to once a week that you're walking through life, that you're teaching the word of God? Do you have someone that you invest in? If you don't, get someone. Go fishing. It's what Jesus commanded us to do. It's, the most, it's one of the most important things that Jesus commanded us to do. That is the way the church multiplies. It's not the ministry team's job to disciple. It's your job. It's your job to disciple. Me as a minister, disciples, because that's my uh, command from Jesus as an individual Christian, and my job is to equip you to disciple, and that's what we're doing on Wednesday night. So find someone to disciple. And I've spoken to many of you, and I know there are those in this room who have someone that you disciple. And it's been years that you've been working on them. Don't give up. Don't give up. And I know Sunday I mentioned this, you know, the church needs to be filled up, but y'all, you know, y'all need to understand I get rejected too. I've been inviting people to church since I came here, and um, I think one person showed up one time, so <laughs> I get rejected just like y'all. But we are, to, we are to never give up and continue to try. The good thing is, is technically, if you can at least eat with them or have coffee with them or meet with them, you, you can be the church to them, even if they don't walk through those doors just yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just who you are, God. And I look forward to these Wednesday nights because it's, it's a time where we can really stretch our minds and our hearts. And I pray that it does that for everyone here. And I pray that it's challenging. I pray that we leave here understanding the grand narrative of your story, that we have redemption in Jesus, that since the beginning of time, you have planned out every single act in history. Father, that nothing catches you off by surprise. But you work together for all things, Lord, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Father God, if there's anyone in our church body that comes every week and they're not called according to your purpose, which means they have not believed in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would choose to have an authentic faith in you, that they would not just play the game of Christianity, but, Father, they would fall down on their faces before you and claim you as holy God, and that they would serve you and love you all their lives. And, Father, we pray for our community that we can be a light in it, that you would continue to show us how we can do that, and as we be obedient to that, calling to make disciples. Help us. Help us to see the fruit, Father. Encourage us by it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.